Welcome to the Special Generalist Podcast. Today's guest is an author of a Wall Street Journal and national best-selling book. The title is Ultra Learning, Accelerate Your Career, Master Hard Skills, and Outsmart the Competition. Scott is well known for his online blog started in 2006 where he writes about learning, productivity, career, habits, and much more. He is known for pursuing unconventional challenges to modern and traditional methods of learning and development. For an example, he once took an entire four-year MIT computer science degree online in just under one year. His range varies from language learning, portrait drawing, and more. His book includes dense research and the principles to coined ultra-learning. <laughs> I'm excited to welcome Scott Young. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great chatting with you today. I am going to give uh, Instagram's algorithm its due. It put me on to some of the the small images you post oh. and uh, <laughs> oh, the corresponding yeah. podcasts that go along with those. And I've been um, listening to them as I've even built out the idea of what I wanted to do with this podcast and Instagram page. The purpose is to explore what makes the individual trying to learn multiple domains, but also have a dense understanding to be able to be competent in them. And I think ultra learning is mm -hmm. uh, coin in and of itself. I read your book and I think it's um, incredibly uh, useful as the configuration you set towards learning or a pursuit or objective. But I think I want to start with getting to know you a little bit and understanding where you started and blew up from your pursuit in, in the MIT challenge and that kind of whole story. Yeah, it's been a long journey. I wrote this book to summarize some of my personal experiences and really also to give people the benefit of all the great stories and examples of people doing really incredible feats of learning that influenced me so much. And so my first project was, as you mentioned, this MIT challenge. And uh, this was right after I graduated from university. I wanted to go back to school. I was thinking of studying computer science, programming. Didn't really want to go back to school and pay tuition and do that. And uh, MIT actually posts a lot of their classes, one of the best, most elite institutions for technology on the planet. They post a lot of their classes for free. Now, this is not the same as getting an MIT degree or get an MIT credential, but the idea was if you can learn a class, watch the lectures, do the final exam, maybe you could do something that was close to what an MIT student would do if they actually went to MIT. And so this was my project. And initially, the focus was just going to be on passing the final exams. Later, I also added the programming projects too, because it, it didn't seem quite fair to do a, a computer science degree without doing um, the programming projects. Which is applied um, science. You got to do course. how it's applied. But the given that this was a bit of a stripped down approach, it wasn't like I had the group assignments, I didn't have the labs, I didn't have essays or PowerPoint presentations. I decided to kind of compress the timeline a little bit. So I focused on doing it in 12 months. And that, as you mentioned, was one of the projects that kind of gave, I guess, my little claim to fame right now. That's what got me a little bit of notoriety. And then after that, I followed up with another project where I went with a friend and we went to four different countries to learn four different languages. So we were in Spain learning Spanish, Brazil learning Portuguese, China learning Mandarin, and then finally South Korea learning Korean. And the sort of crux or method of that project was when we would land in the country, we wouldn't speak 
in English, we would speak only in the language we were trying to learn to each other and to people that we would meet with a very narrow range of exceptions. And so that meant that virtually the whole time we're speaking this language and we certainly didn't reach a level of like perfection in any of the languages we were there. But I think given most people's aspirations for learning a language, which is to be able to have conversations, make friends, actually interact meaningfully with people, we did a pretty good job, I would say. We were able to make friends, interact meaningfully with people in four different countries. And so that was also another, I think, eye-opening experience for me because the stereotype we have of language learning is that, okay, you spend two, three years in school and you don't remember any of it. And then oh. you travel there and maybe you, know, you, you remember how to say hola and th that's about it. And so this just showed me like a, a very different way of approaching learning subjects, something that's much more hands-on, much more involved. Not to say that classroom learning doesn't have its place, uh, but I think this showed me that given that university and higher education is often so expensive that it's often like removing you from your life, making it very hard for you to do other things. I think exploring other ways of learning things and especially really trying to get down to the meat of what do you need to do to learn something I think is, is really valuable. So that's kind of why I wrote this book and I wanted to share those stories and also all the research I uncovered along the way of how people learn. That was, yeah, that's what kind of... <laughs> caught my eyes so intensely was one all the different domains and pursuits that you've been able to accomplish including your portrait drawing to language learning to not only that but the languages it the way they vary I think it's Mandarin to Portuguese but one of the things that I've recently done is I did a speech or a talk on what vocational schools are and what they do I was actually a university student. I had and always have had the troubles of selecting one thing, but through that I've also admired the skill acquisition and the ability by learning by doing. I think you you highlight this extremely well, and I think when you were talking about the difference between learning languages versus learning them in the actual environment that, that they basically came from, instead of learning the things evenly, or learning the theory of everything evenly, you actually learned the nuances and the things that are highly used and repeated, so you became much more acclimated with actually how the language is used versus how it should be, how it should be in theory, right? Yeah, I think there's often this like great debate in language learning circles over what's the right method to learn a language and like people get really testy about it. So there's this whole group of people that are very much focused on input. So you have to like spend lots of time listening and like don't try to speak too soon because you're going to make mistakes and you're going to calcify bad speaking habits. There's the whole group of people that argue the total opposite that you should speak immediately from the very first second you start learning. There's people who hate school school based learning for language people who love it. So my point is not to say that there is a universal strategy. Clearly there isn't. People have learned to learn languages many different ways. But what I think is true, at least in the, the sort of broader case, is that it can often be the case that what is holding you back from using a language is not merely 
okay, I, I, I have no ability to perform this language at all. It's that you're not actively using it in any way. Whether that's listening, whether that's reading, whether that's speaking, you're not using it. And there's sort of two factors there. One factor is that without using it, you don't really practice a lot of the stuff that they cover in school. You just don't get enough quantity of time in a class that you meet one hour a week to really, really drill down a lot of those uh, basic phrases, a lot of that basic kind of comprehension. You do need to have pretty extensive practice, I think. And so one thing that immersion or any of these methods at work can do is give you that extensive practice so that you actually, when you say something, you've said it not just once or twice, but like a hundred times. So it just comes out right. like automatically. So I think that can be a major benefit. And then the second thing is that you learn things in a context so that when you have to use it, what situations you're using it for, you know what you're learning it. I think it's not always the case that this is true for languages, but I've certainly been in situations where I'll like retreat to doing a lot of, let's say, flashcard practice. I did a lot of that with Mandarin Chinese because it was so difficult in the beginning. And I think that can be good, it can be helpful, but it can be dangerous if you only do that because very often you will learn things in the wrong way. And I so I think that up. Yep. And so I think the problem is not going to school or taking classes. The problem is not doing the real thing that you want to do. I, I think that it's certainly possible to learn lots of useful stuff in classes. It's certainly possible to watch movies without subtitles and pick up vocabulary. I'm not trying to make any real strong claim that there's a only one right way of doing it and traveling the country and speaking exclusively is the only way that will work. But I think when you get yourself in a situation where you spend a lot of time learning, but there's no application, no using, no doing, it, it is certainly possible that you will acquire kind of not the right way of doing it. You learn the word and not it actually doesn't mean that or you pronounce it wrong or and you're just not getting any feedback. You're not actually getting corrected and, and getting on the path to, to learning it properly. And schools really vary in quality there. Some of them don't have this problem, but I, I definitely have met people that they've spent a lot of time studying and I don't know what they were doing in their classes, but they certainly weren't practicing the real thing. And, and the objective of universities or what they're trying to do is what one of the things that you detail is having this general ability to transfer said science to mm -hmm. other applied sciences or, or trying to extract or abstract out the, the thing that's going to be transferable across all of these domains. And we're going to teach mm -hmm. you those things. We don't care what you specialize in or what you do. Yeah. But the problem is you're not getting the surrounding context or the environment that 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 is going to be applied for and the transferred studies that aren't very favorable. I think you hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of things that I think institutionally schools are set up in a way that it doesn't always work the way you'd like it to. So one of them is what you talked about that to be able to apply knowledge you need to have a lot of specific practice um, using it. So I think the best case scenario is learning a, a complex cognitive skill like algebra, right? And you work on algebra and you learn all the algebra and, and algebra is hard to learn just on its own. So right. spending time in the classroom doing paper and pencil until you get the algebra and then you go out and you apply it. And turns out a lot of times algebraic situations come up in real life and you don't even think about how to do it. So this is why we struggle with doing the word problems in algebra is it is much harder to do it when you're not actually given the equations and the symbols to right. manipulate. And so this is the best case scenario. The best case scenario is where there was this actually sophisticated, complicated skill 
that maybe it made sense to acquire that on its own, but there's still the problem of applying it. A lot of skills that we learn, there's these abstract notions that if they're not connected to anything, what is the point? What is the point in right. learning this if you're net, like, what's the point in, like people will work on, uh, like critical thinking courses will be an example of one, a critical thinking course, and it will teach you some like very general kind of heuristics and rules. but. Then you go off and you read some political argument and you don't do any of those things that were in that course, right? There's no connection into the actual practice to what you're actually doing. And so I tend to be much more of a fan of learning that, not to say that you can't learn stuff from a classroom or instruction, but where it is intermixed with what you're trying to do very early on. So that when you learn a fact or when you learn some idea, the kind of connective tissue that it has right. to the actual situation is there from the beginning. So when you learn algebra, it's because, okay, yeah, but there's this situation that comes up where I need to use this. And so I think, again, there are some situations where maybe a lot of study is, is better because it's going to be just way too complicated to learn. But I think, I tend to think that those are not only in the minority, but they're much less prevalent than we think of given how gargantuan the education system right. is and how necessary it is to have credentials to do things these days. And there's some necessary constraints on the education yeah. system that go along with just going to university and becoming what you, it's a time to sample and do whatever you want. But I know my experience, I've loved to learn the theory or the things that I'm reading while I'm actually actively doing said things. Yeah. And there's this instead of doing one thing and then realizing, oh, I should have applied what I learned five years ago, six, seven years ago, and completely forgetting that, I can actually, for the moment's being, if, like, for an example, cybersecurity is something that I, I recently had to work on, I'm going to pursue an immense amount of research on said thing while I'm learning it, and it just sticks and it connects, and I'm actually able to grow my associations of, of different things that I'm working on uh, because I'm also working on them in real life, but then also understanding the, the layers that go on top of it, so to speak. I definitely agree. I think, that, I think that you can't learn without practice. You can't learn without feedback about whether you're applying the concept correctly. I think instruction is very important. A lot of times people struggle with things because they don't know how to do it. However, instruction and like materials and resources are like the one thing we don't have in short supply right now. If, if you want to learn any skill, there's a million YouTube videos of the person doing it. There's thousands of tutorials, thousands of courses. That's not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is doing the practice, applying it. Like it, it requires work. It requires putting yourself through that. So I think oh, yeah, that's we... something that that's very important and it can get missed in a sort of if you think of learning mostly as reading or mostly watching things, I think that can be misleading because it omits how important practice is. It omits how important it is to work through problems and apply them and stuff like that. Right. You have the idea, and I see this a lot in construction as well. So if you think about on one hand, you have the architects, engineers designing and developing said plans for this uh, building that's getting constructed. And then on the other hand, you have the actual laymen, the, the, the actual practitioners or the contractors building said thing. And there's always this like tension between these two groups because subcontractors will go, those guys don't know how to design a damn thing. Because in theory, those are all the things that should be applicable to that said thing. 
But in real life, the there's so many more variables to account for, and until you've actually put them into practice or executed them, there's a disconnect in the handoff there. And it's getting better and better with that, and that's what the general contractor kind of tries to facilitate. But I see it commonly that that is a, a similar instance. And not to derail the conversation, yeah. but I, I do think this reality versus like the theory abstraction, we create a set of blueprints because it's a, an abstract representation of what we want to execute in our plan, and then we also specify out the materials, all that stuff. But through that, there's also the other side of the, the execution. And it's just interesting how the, the industry is adopting so rapidly for an example, we can touch on apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was going to derail into this, yeah, but no masons are, you, you can't, the, the labor shortage is extensively moving forward and that comes down to the lack of apprenticeship programs, the lack of individuals actually selecting trade skills to be that the basically centerpiece of their, their careers. And masonry is now being eliminated as a scope of work in most buildings. Yeah, And the worry of mine is that now you have all these unionized subcontractor specialties, all these specialized work with great skill, mm-hmm. and it'll just get eliminated on the front end through the planning and the, the, the theory, right? I definitely, I'm a big fan of apprenticeship. I think that uh, apprenticeship is certainly like the best way to learn skills that have a large manual component or that involve a lot of, you could say tacit know-how, like you have to know the right way to put the bricks there. There's probably some theory that you could learn in a book, don't get me wrong, but if you're not doing any of the laying of the bricks, I don't understand how you would probably learn that skill. But I would argue that apprenticeship is underrated even for really cognitive and abstract skills. Like I, I think that's how you become good writers. It's how you, it's how scientists become good scientists. They go get a PhD. What do you do in a PhD? Well, it's mostly an apprenticeship. You work under the master. The master is the, the head right. of the laboratory. They help you, give you advice on your projects and give you feedback and tell you what's wrong with your experiment. Like, it's essentially a master-apprentice relationship, but it is this sort of elite level of cognitive work. I think the reason we've gotten into this situation is that apprenticeship, there's two reasons. One is that apprenticeship is inherently more costly than let me print off a textbook and hand it to you and get you to fill out a pencil and paper exam. So there's cost cost reasons why we right. shifted so it's, much it's, to classroom-based. It's much cheaper, to, much cheaper to teach. To scale you know, and people. To, to do that. Even though yeah. college is super expensive, it's definitely uh, would be more <laughs> expensive to get everyone four years of working under a master in a in an employed firm and this kind of stuff. But the second reason I think is just that there's, we've created a lot of bureaucratic hurdles and licensure requirements and things like this that that sort of by their nature require this kind of formal testing environment for their own justification. So if the sort of pencil and paper test is what's easy to administer and the pencil and paper test is how you get the licenses and that's how you prove you know what you're doing, then it it just, it creates this gravity towards a type of formal study in a way that maybe isn't representative of the craft. Now, this is, uh, we're getting into like really in the weeds here, but one of the things that I noted when I was doing my language learning project is that there is a bit of a divergence between the kind of studying I was doing for what was my actual purpose, which was to have conversations and travel and do that kind of stuff, versus if I was trying to get a language certificate. 
Now, this isn't to say that language certificates are bad or even that there's some obvious better way of measuring it, but simply that once you start learning for the test, you start modifying what you're trying to learn to fit that test format. And so a really good test has like pretty good overlap with the actual skill you need. But I think the more the pencil and paper test just simply can't test the things that you really want them to test, they start to diverge. And so I think that language learning, there's some good language tests that like, yeah, if you're this level of a language, it's probably pretty good. The studying you do to get good at the language test isn't so different from what you might do to get good at the thing that you're trying to do. But there's definitely pursuits where I think that can be the case, where the things that you are measuring in the test are not really that related to, to what is actually right. used in practice. I feel like a lot of university classes are like that, that you're teaching a subject in a, with a bunch of abstract skills. The, in order to, you can't actually test people on applying it really that much. And so you test them on whether they can solve tricky logic puzzles that are related to the idea, which is not really what you do in practice. So I tend to be more a believer in apprenticeship, hands-on learning. I think that certainly we live in a world where you need credentials, but that's my bias is that I feel like there's a lot of weird things that our educational system creates, maybe because of its institutional incentives that are not really in line with the best way to learn things. I think, I don't know about the, this might be my personal bias, but yeah. a lot of the individuals that I know that go to the university, one, they go because it's the norm to do, but then also they're going to get the credibility to say that they've gone through said of university course. at said thing and aren't actually actively learning. <laughs> they're not actually going to consume as much yeah. knowledge from what is incredible professors and individuals. And don't get me wrong, there's tons of people yeah. and resource within these universities to get from. But I think people are going there to do their chores and get the credibility and then move on and, and, and move into the, the workforce. And then they find out that, one, they never got any at-market-ready skills. Mm -hmm. They just went through the, the, the process to get some more of these abstract domains or ideas and they really don't know how to apply them so when I spoke at the vocational school I said everyone kind of skips over the skill acquisition and they just go to these theories or these abstract ideas or learning about the ideas instead of actually making them more applicable and I just encouraged I said there's nothing wrong with starting out with a skill and then broadening and learning the philosophies and everything else that comes with that that's that's a really good point too because I think this is something that I sometimes get in debates about where I talk about this kind of idea of directness and active practice and stuff and then you get the kind of like but are you really saying that if you didn't study this for I think people who study it for years do better than someone who has no experience and it's like, of course if you spend years studying it you're gonna know more someone who doesn't know right. anything that's not really the question the question is should you spend years studying it before you do anything of any practical value if you apply it anywhere like the question is not the question is not like is it important to learn the grammar of a language or is it important to learn the vocabulary or is it important to learn how like a language works in a theoretical level yeah of course it's important i like learning that stuff but the question is should you spend eight years doing that before you have a conversation with someone and i think just my my own opinion is that the way we've set things up people either institutionally because it's like you need to do that four-year degree before you can even do anything related to the field or personally just i'm going to spend eight months on duolingo before i even attempt to have a conversation 
I think that there is just a real bias towards sort of front-loading the theoretical book learning, domain learning stuff, and saving the skill for much later. And I think this creates a lot of problems. One of the problems of it is that essentially when you practice a skill, you're turning knowledge into a more durable form. So when you have, you've just read a lecture of something and there's some idea in your head, is different from when you actively practice it. When you're using it a lot, uh, it, when you're using it, it becomes fluent. It's something that you can just use. And that is a more durable, lifelong memory. And so I think especially when you're considering that like you might have studied something your freshman year that is relevant on the job 10 years later, there is a high probability that you've forgotten it by then. Even if you present them side by side, like there's lots of experiments where you give someone a situation, you give them an application situation right next to each other in time, and you hint that A might be relevant for B. It's surprising how many people don't do it. So imagine separating it 10 years and not having the hint and not it like, it's hard. And so I think that there's a lot of inefficiencies in our current system. And so I would say that at the very least, I would support more like, co-op, dual work things where you study and practice at the same time. I think it would be more humane for students because they'd be doing something that's actually meaningful, like apprenticing at the jobs that they want to get good at, as opposed to just studying. Some students really like studying, but lots of kids hate it, and it seems unfair to force them to do all the studying before they can do any actual practice. It's it's super interesting, we, the note you said earlier, which apprenticeship actually costs more economically but is the area in which you hear the master to apprentice argument to say this is cheap labor when in all reality you if you have a good master you are learning an immense amount for for, for getting paid which is in, inversed a little bit but i think that it's an interesting uh, point to at least well, say the, the history of apprenticeship is really interesting because i i was digging into that for this sort of new book topic i'm working on and it's it's fascinating because, first of all, just how this was how, you know, people acquired skills. Like, the, the modern education system is, like, surprisingly recent. It was only the Prussian military system ended up, like, this idea of universal 20 years of education that we all go through is just... It's crazy. This is not, this is very, very recent. Now, I'm not to say that it's not important. I think literacy and arithmetic are important, but it's very recent. And the apprenticeship was how we actually got good at, at the craft skills that we were doing for millennia. And issues with apprenticeship, and this is something that they try to resolve, is that there's a tension between the master and the apprentice. That uh, the master has the knowledge, the apprentice is labor, and the apprentice wants to learn what the master knows as quickly as possible so that they can become a master themselves. But the master does not want them to learn as quickly as possible because once they have taught them everything, then they can just go run away and go practice the skill somewhere else. So there is this sort of continual dynamic. And this is why often apprentices were bound to their master for seven years because the idea was, I need to recoup the cost of training you in this sort of process that if I, like, I could teach you in a year, but I've got to, I've got to like make sure that I'm getting right. my free labor for seven years. And so I think that's how these costs were embedded. And that was a, a constant tension. I think you can see a modern version of that with a lot of employers being reluctant to train new people on 
general skills. So like you were saying about masonry, a lot of construction sites would not be willing to have their experienced masons showing randos off the street how to do it. Even if they could learn the skill, it costs them a lot of money. Their experienced masons are very expensive. And as soon as the other people learn the skill, they're going to go run off and perform it and be paid a wage. So they're not going to recoup that investment. So I think that's one of the things that can be, it's not an, it's not an insurmountable challenge, but definitely we've seen a shifting in, in many ways because of like people changing jobs frequently and stuff to the idea that, well, no, you need to know how to do your job before we'll give it to you. And maybe a little bit less on, on at least the general trainings. It, you can certainly be trained to do the specific job. If you work at McDonald's, was, you'll get trained to do that specific job, but it's harder to teach general ask skills that. that way. Yeah. I was going to ask as far as most apprenticeships fall now aligned with like specialty yeah. um, domains. The master is an expert in a, in a narrow field and they are then taking the knowledge that they have once learned through mm -hmm. either trial and error or from their mentor and then passed it down to the next, which is interesting when you're talking about general skills. And the entire premise of this, this podcast is playing on, yeah, are general skills applicable? Things like writing, speaking, arithmetic, just those base foundational mm -hmm. level things and trying to converge on different domains and or find Scott Adams dynamic of yeah. trying to find areas in which um, you can either converge or you can try to identify which is important. And my, my, I think this aligns really well with your experiment piece and then your directness piece because directness mm -hmm. is learning by practice in which you understand what is working and what isn't, that expert yeah. in a narrow field and then experimentation is actually identifying, okay, I have two options here. I'm going to diverge and try to play with these multiple areas in which I'm, I'm trying to find the best solution. No matter what, you're figuring out what works and what doesn't. But I think there's something to be said about individuals trying to obtain breadth, but also depth. I, I want to hear what you think on that. Yeah, I mean, breadth and depth is a very interesting question. So as I said, the, there's a lot of research on transfer that shows that just learning one subject does not usually help you that much for learning a totally unrelated subject. And that the degree it helps is usually because they have overlapping ideas and facts. So learning physics and learning math overlap because they share a lot of the same math. But right. the, the kind of idea that's really, I would say, uh, dominant in cognitive science right now is that what we learn from situations tends to be much closer to specific facts, specific procedures, specific discrimination, specific concepts. Like it's it, it, the grain size is much smaller, I think, than a lot of people naively think. And so this suggests that this definitely weighs in favor of specialization because if you need to master A and you need to master B and they're two separate amounts of work, then that's a lot. But I think there's also a place for what you're talking about where often it's the sort of union of particular skills or it's it's some sort of combination of things that is productive. So it doesn't mean that like the key is to become only have one very particular narrow specialty sometimes being okay at one thing and being really good at another thing you can find some opportunity that requires the intersection of those two things so i think there's a little bit of a difference between the sort of acquisition of knowledge which again has this sort of specific character and the 
maybe you could say the application of knowledge or the usefulness of knowledge because I definitely feel like it's definitely beneficial to learn lots of things. I definitely like learning lots of skills. I think that that's generally good. But I also think that given any particular objective you have in life, the the sort of starting point is directness. The starting point is figuring out, okay, what is the thing that I need to get good at to do this? Yeah, no matter what, you're, so. you're basically starting from zero there and playing as you immerse yourself into said yeah. environment and need to understand, that's how we originally started to learn. I, I'll, I'll give I, a good example of what I'm talking about. If I don't know any Chinese, then certainly like the fact that I learned computer science is going to be of very minimal utility for me learning Chinese. It will help me with maybe some abstract kind of like, I talk about meta-learning in the book, this sort yep. of overarching strategy and this kind of stuff. But in terms of actual content, they're, they're, they don't have much overlap at all. But if I were a programmer and then I also learned Chinese and then I found there was a programming job where I had interface with a Chinese company, it'd be good that I knew both of those skills. So exactly. I think there's definitely exactly. a benefit to learning lots of things because oftentimes situations come up where, oh, I can use this skill that I've learned before. And that's certainly been the case for me. And so I don't want to suggest that everyone become narrow specialists. But in the case of learning computer science, you got to focus on practicing and learning computer science. In the case of learning Chinese, you got to focus and practice on learning Chinese. You can't expect that doing all the computer science practice is going to help you with your Chinese just through some sort of magical ability of learning or something like that. And I, I think I, I came across this after reading a couple books. Um, one was Range by just talking about intuition, range, understanding mm -hmm. through analogy, stuff that you, you don't even realize that you associate through that learning. I mean, I think it's hard to measure probably in that transfer example because you get so specific in the content. But I think the frameworks and the mental models, and I think you actually lay this out in the intuition piece with uh, Feynman in, in your book, just talking about intuition as it is in general. But I, I do think that you're right. Like the premise isn't, okay, let's learn this and it's going to apply three rows over with every single domain that you try to learn but the combination of said skills makes you less unidimensional and where I try to pull the thread from all this is right now we have people going to universities selecting one thing spending four or five years learning abstract things the market demands specialization and then they get pigeonholed into learning one thing and then they don't have this ability to combine you know multiple yeah. areas and that's it's inverted in my perspective and that's why I want to encourage people and that's the listeners of this kind of are more intrigued by because I think you're getting more I think it's in the modern world I don't know if it's the abundance of information there's just, it's just so much but people not wanting to to select one thing more want want to be entrepreneurs and you see all these different people that are trying to expand their breath instead of get skill acquisition anyway well yeah i think again it's it's difficult to say because i think the way i view it is that there's certainly a benefit of being well-rounded and knowing lots of things even if just for the you know sheer fact that you become a more interesting person to talk to <laughs> so right. i definitely don't right. suggest that everyone just become like hyper specialized dullards but at the same time, I think the point I would make about direct practice and about this sort of philosophy of surrounding apprenticeship and stuff is that to actually be competent in a skill requires a lot of specific hands-on local knowledge that is acquired through experience. That would be more my point. I take lots of classes, so I really like taking online classes as, as can be witnessed by my MIT challenge. And so like I'm constantly like learning subjects that I have no plan to use 
ever as a kind of just activity. I, you can see my bookshelf. I've got tons of books yep. back here on tons of topics. I read books about the French Revolution and fungus, and like, the, like things that are not useful at all, right? Like I just read them because I'm interested and because I want to know how the world works. That being said, if I wanted to become a historian of the French Revolution or I wanted to become some researcher who was using fungus to cure cancer or something like this, I'm going to need to have a lot of very specific hands-on kind of knowledge. And so I think the doing component of it, it must be there. And I think the doing just involves a lot of specifics. It involves getting a lot of specifics right. I think that you don't just, like, you can become, you don't become a good programmer just by knowing lots of computer science theory. The computer science right. theory can help, but you become a good programmer by doing lots of programming. And so this isn't to devalue theory, but just to say that if what you were doing was only learning you know, theories of computation and mental models right. and this kind of stuff without the practice, without actually working through it and building it, you wouldn't get as good at it. And so I think that definitely I'm in favor of study and breadth and all these things. But I think the specific character of a lot of skills needs to be appreciated. Yeah, no, I, I it's definitely a weird topic and, and, and thing I'm trying to map out and define because and this is one of the reasons I want to talk to you because I think it helps me understand a little bit more. But there's definitely a tension between specialization and generalization. But mm -hmm. there's also a complementary aspect as well to it that I'm trying to identify as far as, like you had said, like you, you have a natural curiosity for lots of things. And at a certain point, you had to select what you wanted to do. But you never know what the next thing or next project that you may want to pursue. And because you are curious or interested just by temperament, allows you to have a maybe broader scene of the world or allows you to maybe map the world out more while you try to select what you want to do. I'm not specifically sure. No, I, th I think you're right. I think so one way of looking at this is that the human brain has two different memory systems. One is a declarative memory system and one is a procedural yeah. memory system. So the declarative memory system is kind of thought to be organized as a concept map that there's like a lot of little individual nodes of facts or concepts or experiences and they're all associated with other things by their relationships and so the idea here being that you want to have kind of a richly organized set of knowledge and i think that's very broad and it, it can certainly keep going forever every topic is linked to everything else if you've ever been on wikipedia you can get to almost any article just by clicking links on every other article yep. and so there's certainly a valuable goal there of having an extremely richly represented set of ideas because whenever you encounter a new idea you're able to see how it fits in with all the other ideas and you link it to other things and if lots and lots about lots of things and when someone starts telling you a new conversation and it uses some of those concepts you already know them so it's much easier to learn new ideas so that's very good the procedural system which is what we associate with skill with doing and this like, kind of stuff. like automization right? yeah like Nick, Nick Carb coins that it, it tends to be it tends to be much more organized in terms of like cue response patterns and so when we are learning skills often all we have to go is just our declarative associative web so this is like the kind of knowing knowing about computers and knowing about how computer programs work and this kind of thing. But as you start to write computer programs, then certain parts of the writing of the computer program get automated. They get turned into something that you just do automatically. And as you do it over and over again, the common patterns just become routine. They just become something you don't even have to think about doing to do them well. And it's like as riding you keep... a bike, right? 
Exactly. And obviously for motor skills, this is a huge part. It's not even that valuable to know in theory how to ride it. But even for like cognitive skills, even for things that what you're doing was at some point explicitly, you could describe how to solve the math problem. The people who are good at math have all these sort of proceduralized parts of the math skill. And just knowing this sort of expansive web of things doesn't necessarily mean you can easily solve problems or that you can even solve problems at all. Because if the patterns are not fully automated and, and they're not fully right. infused in that way, it may be very difficult to solve the problems. And so I think I think that there is a tension between those those two kinds of systems. And yeah, this is definitely something that I've also been exploring this kind of trade-off between wanting to have breadth but also recognizing that what you learn is often there are these like the grain size of what you're learning is very right. small it's not the case that you're just generally improving memory whenever you remember something and then there's an opportunity cost there too to, to, yeah. to determining what you want i think you highlight this really well with with the meta learning piece calling it instrumental versus intrinsic you you've highlighted with just saying yeah i read all these things behind me because i'm you know genuinely interested in these said things but when you're trying to define what you're trying to learn as a utility, it might be a little bit different as far as, as how that gets applied. And I think that they can it can broaden out. So like the I think to use computer programming as an example, if I were to suggest someone to use computer programming, I would not necessarily suggest, okay, go and spend ten years studying and then write a computer program. I would probably suggest, okay, learn what you need to get started. And then as you learn, you can learn more and you, you can build outward from there. So this is, I think, what you were talking about as well, just that I think there is the, the sort of educational approach is like, we're going to give you all this theory and then later we're going to do all the application. That's sort of the a little bit of a caricature, but that's sort of what happens. You do all this theory and then all this application. And I just think that it's not a real healthy way of doing it. It's probably better to do like tightly interleaved the learning about something and then doing it, getting instructions, practicing it. You need to do both. I think if you just have one and without the other, it's very hard to it's very hard to actually have skill and have improvement in things you want to improve. Another point that I think it has some some tension that I, I try to figure out and think of is I think what you have mentioned about the focus piece. I think right now we have this incredible abundance of contexts with the the whole coined metaverse now. I see it yeah. everywhere. But one of the things that I think a lot of people, especially that are younger, their ability to shift context is so much more rapid than maybe older. Maybe that's just a part of, of what actually happens to you when you get older. But one of the things that I've noticed in contention with too much focus is the sense of myopia. And I've noticed this when I'm like really involved in said objective. I, I almost eliminate the context around me. And this goes back to this whole viewing the broader world and its context with whatever that set objective yeah. is. And almost as if it's like your eye when you're focusing in on something and you don't look at where that thing is placed around it. And that's that when I was reading your focus, and that's always my, I always hear the proverbial focus up, quit looking at five or six different things. But I do like your point about interleaving and maintaining not too much, right? Like containing three or four subjects. Don't go after a hundred. You don't need to, if you think about the modern world and, and social media, you're switching through a thousand topics, each an individual tweet, and it's superficial and shallow. 
anyways, I, I just wanted well, to throw that think, thought out there. I think there. there's sort of two ideas there, which, which I want to tease apart. One is about how focused you are. And so this is sort of related to what you're talking about, like generalization versus specialization, but even just like the more you drill down into a very narrow kind of problem, you do miss the surrounding. There's all those interesting studies where the, like, the people are focusing on the players passing the basketball and they don't notice the man in the gorilla suit right. walking behind them. And that, that I think is just that as you control your attention to stay on one particular pattern or one particular task or objective, you do like you, you do stop paying attention to the other things. And that's what it means to focus. And so I think there's, you know, there's trade-offs. Like the reason we have the ability to focus and the reason we get distracted is that one is not universally good. I think it's certainly the case that you need focus to do a lot of difficult mental work. So when the central problem is difficult, then I don't think it's the case that being really distracted all the time helps. Certainly you need to focus on it. But at the same time, if you focus on it and you have like a, the wrong way of viewing it or you're not seeing it right, you do actually have to step back to see what the pattern is. And so it can be hard in that case if you're really focused on a problem to see your way out of it. So I think this is often the case with people like myself. Maybe you're overanalyzing something, you're overthinking it. You can't break out of a pattern that you have. You're too close before. to your work almost. So there, like, there is this that. sort of tension between, let's say, diffuse and focused modes of thinking. But the other axis that I think is somewhat separate to what you're talking about, but I think is important, is about the effort involved in in doing certain things. So my feeling about social media and, and this sort of switching is not even so much it's about switching. It's about you you hit a surface level of a lot of topics because to go deeper than that requires a certain amount of effortful engagement and that can be focused but it, it could also be broad it could also be this sort of creative problem solving where you have to like try different things and figure right. it out it, it's just that i think we are we have this sort of craving of novelty we have this craving of stimulation and so when information is packaged in a certain way it's very appealing to our kind of innate hardwiring and it's not that information's bad. It just means that other information is going to be relatively harder. And so I think that's one of the things you're seeing is that it is easier to read tweets than a book. It's easier to, it's easier to read like a pop book than a textbook. It's easy. These are true. Yeah. And so, so I think there is a, there's a related issue there about your effort, your ability to, I think your ability to put in effort on tasks is related to your motivation to the goal as well as the salience of whatever alternatives are there. And I think what's happened with social media and, and stuff lately is that the salience of the alternatives, they've just become like always on, always accessible. And so I think it does make it harder to pursue some of those deeper activities. So I think those are kind of, they're related ideas for sure. I, but I, I think see, I, I get, I get what you meant. You split it apart. I get now what you meant by the, the different axis of what focus may be. It may be as you're scrolling, it's the actual locking of effort onto that specific thing and then maybe digging deeper into the effort to actually not get this superficial novel dopamine hit, but actually to lock it in place and dive deeper into it, like the actual action of said. So that that is interesting, and I, I was... And you, you can tell there's a lot of these interrelated themes that aren't necessarily connected. That's just the way my the way my brain thinks. No, I, I I agree. I think they're related. I think that it take it 
basically, I think whenever you are in an environment, people are going to trend toward whatever is the least effort, most appealing kind of options, given their incentives and stuff. And to the extent that I'm writing a book or we're talking about things as a kind of counter to whatever we view to be like the dominant culture, then that's what I feel is that like, if the real easy things are the things you do a lot and the hard things aren't the things that you do, then it's like, how can I make it so that I'm more able to do some of the harder things and I'm going to be able to accomplish more? So I think that's a very general problem. It's not even just about this. I think it's how do you shift it so that you can read the books instead of just the tweets and you can study a topic instead of just dabble in it and, and things like that. I think as I was going through this, I tried to cover a variety of of, of your principles in, in your book, Ultra Learning. I, I thought it was an incredible read. I think that anyone that's interested in kind of the topics that we touched on, but also Scott's future work, I think I would highly recommend it. He's got all sorts of unique ideas and not unique ideas, some traditional methods that are, are also just, for whatever reason, going by the wayside. But I do want to go over the, the nine principles before I wrap this up. I was just going to you know, rattle them off here so that everyone can hear that. So the first one's meta-learning. The second one's directness. Actually, I don't even know if I have these in order. Focus, drill, retrieval, feedback, intuition, experiment, and retention. The... Of course, <laughs> the ironic one. Hey, but you're practicing retrieval, so there you go. You got that's you got true. That that's right true. Now. I actually, when I was reading this, I I kept thinking. I was like, okay, so if I'm talking about this stuff <laughs> with Scott, I I need to yeah. actually practice what he's talking about here, which is exactly the the premise of what we we're talking about. But yeah, no, it's. I think there's a lot of really fascinating research. So I hope that people will uh, dig into the book. I know we've been talking a lot about this sort of directness apprenticeship these ideas but uh, there's a lot of other things that uh, i talk about in the book as well yeah i tried to i tried to find a fit between mm -hmm. what i was trying to map out and define and also uh specifically what you were going for but there's a, a variety of stories he selects people that kind of are ultra learners from history also individuals that you have worked with or helped out and He's got a, a website full of different courses, and he's got other ebooks, I believe. And you said you're working on a potential book topic that I'm yeah. going to uh, for sure <laughs> be purchasing because that's oh, what we talked about today. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, we'll see how it shapes out. I think there's still a lot of thinking and research that I have to do myself, but but yeah, I'm in the beginning processes of that. So where do we? Where else do you, does do people find you? Yeah, so people can go to my website at scotthyoung.com. They can also, I know you mentioned Instagram. We have one of my team members take some of the images I draw. I do little doodles for the essays and, and puts them on Instagram. I have a podcast where I read some of my articles and I have a few interviews there as well. And yeah, also if you're interested in the book, it's ultra learning. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. It's also on Audible. So if you're not sick of listening to my voice, you can also oh, you read it. Oh, you read it? Yes, I do. I do. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for coming on, Scott. I, I really do appreciate it. I, I've i learned an immense amount, and kind of one of the reasons why I am doing this is to have conversations with individuals like you passively, but I'm obviously actively putting this together and doing this, but I, I like the vehicle of 
exploring ideas with individuals like yourself. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Oh, thank you.